National Archives podcast series, The Policy Agenda of the British Government, 1945 to 2008, presented by Peter John. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to give a talk at the National Archives. Um, this, uh, as, uh, as Jerry has said, is, is based on a project which is leading to a book. book's not out yet, um, still expecting the proofs uh, any day. And in fact, I don't even have a cover page, but this, this will be on the cover uh, page. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's very much about the, you know, sense the official records, uh, measuring the official records of government over time. So we thought this kind of official briefcase with uh, uh, ER on it was, was, was appropriate. And that will also become evident uh, why we have that um, uh, as, 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 I, as, as I talk. And yes, there is the... Uh, flyer. This is, this is the flagrant bit of uh, self-advertising uh, here. And even with a discount, I'm afraid paperbacks these days do seem to be incredibly expensive, but uh, it is a little bit of a discount. Um, and um, it will be probably out in about June. Oh, no, I won't start with him just yet. Just a little bit about us. Uh, we are um, uh, political scientists. People, we study politics. We're not historians. And it's like trepidation sort of stepping into a sort of more, more historical territory. And I think what we're interested in is really the process of decision-making, how government comes to decisions and why they kind of change over time. And for that, you need quite a lot of, you know, it's, it's helpful to look, look over time to understand these things. So we've, we've kind of crept into history, uh, perhaps rather uh, unawares. But actually, as, as a part of doing this project, I've actually quite got, got, quite got into uh, sort of reading you know, vast amounts of contemporary history. So I don't consider myself expert uh, in any way, and I think... Uh, I almost sense one of the interesting things about um, giving this talk would be to get some some some, some reaction uh, from, from historians about what we're doing. But I'll explain a little bit, kind of, how we got to the the, the project. Partly by starting with this um, uh, with this character, who's perhaps a little bit less familiar uh, than he, he he once was, still graces the the TV screens. Um, but this is 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 Tony Blair. And obviously the Prime Minister is always a very important person um, for, for setting uh, the agenda of government. And uh, Tony Blair got associated with some, partic- some particular approaches to uh, making of decisions. And in particular, quite interested in his statement uh, about uh, education. This is kind of what he became famous for. This was his uh, speech to the Octo- October 1996 Labour Party conference... Ask me my theme main priorities for government, and I tell you, education, education, education. Now, why is that uh, of interest to uh, ourselves? Why we're interested in this is that what he's trying to do is to emphasise some policies over others. He's basically saying, well, it's government, we're going to concentrate on this particular issue. Uh, now, of course, in fact, I do think... Um, it's got, uh, even, even in this kind of uh, phrase, that the word may, I think, is a useful, useful qualifier, because obviously governments have to attend to a whole range of issues. So in some ways, it's not possible for a government to say, well, we're just going to completely focus on education and nothing else, because I think you know, we, could rap- we, would, we could rapidly imagine the whole machine kind of grinding to a halt. But governments do have some discretion to alter the relative emphasis of these kind of policies, and um, uh, this is kind of what interests us. Why do governments want to do that at particular points uh, in time? And uh, I'll have some data to show to what extent did Tony Blair refocus the agenda to a certain extent on, on education and, and, these, and, the, and, and, and these other and, the, and these other things. But that's the kind of little sort of strapline start starting point. 
I think the, the kind of starting point, I suppose, is what we're interested in is a thing called the policy uh, agenda. And I suppose this is the idea that you know, some things in the political system, like institutions, are quite stable. Other things are kind of day-to-day, -day, like kind of scandals, ministerial resignations, the stuff you read in newspapers. We're in the kind of medium range of what government's interested in. These big issues like economy, crime, and, 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 and health, and these things which kind of worry government. And I think the idea is that if you're in government, if you're in power, you have a, a whole range of uh, issues which are hitting your desk all the time. If you're a minister, if you're the prime minister, cabinet secretary, there's all sorts of things. You, you know, everybody's kind of crying for your attention. But the kind of key issues, there's only limited space for that attention. There's only a certain number of things which you can do in any one year or any one month uh, on, those, on, 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 those, on those sorts of things. So this is the idea of the, of the, kind of, of the, of the policy agenda, the list of subjects which those government officials uh, can concentrate on at any one given time. Now, the reasons we debate a little bit about why, why this is the case, it's partly to do with just the space on the agenda. So if you're thinking about, you know, sense how many laws can go through Parliament in one year, there's only a limited number. So effectively, government has to choose between a law on crime or a law on health uh, and, other, and other such choices. Um, in the Queen's Speech, I'm going to talk about in a minute, there's only so many places in the Queen's speech. It can slightly vary from, from year to year, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But basically, it's the same uh, item, item of speech. In terms of budget, there's only so much budget you can spend. Uh, we know this particularly now in a period of austerity, uh, that in a sense, these projects have become even more acute. You know, do, do you fund education? Do you fund, do you fund health? Do you fund, fund defence? So these are the kind of limited choices. There's another argument, um, which I'm happy to, to talk through, because it's slightly more controversial, is the idea that politicians actually have kind of limited cognitive capacity. Uh, they're kind of what we call, yeah, nice smart, uh, and, and, and civil servants and policymakers as well, that they can only concentrate on, on certain things uh, at, at a time. Uh, and the idea is once something comes into prominence, the thing they were worrying about in previous weeks might kind of drop off again. And the idea that you, know, you, you can only kind of concentrate on, on, on a few things at a time. And this is obviously the realm of, of, of cognitive psychology. Um, and the other argument is that it may make sense for government to actually concentrate on a few, on a few things at, at a time, partly to show that it's actually emphasising certain things. So if a government just completely distributed its attention evenly right across all the, diff all the different kinds of topics, in a sense you'll just think, oh, this is a government that's kind of motoring along, it's not really wanting to achieve very much, and maybe that government might not get re-elected uh, in, 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 in the subsequent term. So the argument would be uh, the national government wants to actually prioritise certain things and then critically claim credit uh, for that. Uh, and that's, what, that's partly what we're interested in. So um, this is all about agenda setting. And I think there's two kind of arguments. So one is about prioritisation. The other is about the extent to which the agenda kind of ch changes over time. It's kind of, and I think one argument is that there's lots of pressures in government for things to kind of stay the same that basically what we call the stable processing of, of issues over time. And the reasons are, are to do this is to do with routines. If you think inside the government machine, there's a whole series of routines and consultations, which mean that particular uh, departments may expect certain amounts of public spending per year. Uh, they may always expect to have one little piece in the Queen's speech every two years. So there's, there's this argument that, that, that things, that things um, will, will stay the same. The other reason is also there's also a kind of hierarchy involved that within the kind of space that certain things are considered to be more important and other things to be less important. And quite typically, governments may think that the economy 
or foreign policy might be kind of more important to concentrate over time and always to make sure that you're always doing something on the economy, something on kind of foreign policy, because that's what governments are expected uh, to do. So that's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of stable story. Now, the other story is the idea of that, actually, in fact, we may actually expect also the agenda to ch- actually change over time quite systematically. And one is you may actually get partisan shifts that certain political parties may wish to, may wish to actually stress the, certain things on the agenda more than others. So, for example, we may expect uh, parties of the right, the Conservative Party, to stress things like uh, foreign policy, defence, Labour Party on social issues, welfare and the like. So when those parties change government, you then expect the relative proportion of those issues to shift uh, as well. The other thing is that uh, external factors, if you have a global economic credit crunch, it's probably likely that those in government are going to start thinking about economic matters uh, before, before long. If there is an ex- if there is a, uh, uh, external conflict that Britain's involved with, then in a sense that you can, one always expects the kind of government machine to start kind of focusing on those kind of foreign policy issues. Also, there's a question of expectation that the public will expect the, the government to be concentrating on things which have just become important. So let's say that, that Britain has become, you know, obviously Britain has moved into um, a, a massive economic crisis. The public, if, if the government's not doing something on the economy, then the, you know, the body voters may actually start to, 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 to blame them. And it's no surprise that currently the current coalition government is obviously focusing quite, quite a lot on economic policy measures because it knows that it, it, this, is, this is important. The other idea is that these kind of changes sometimes comes from, from arguments that actually new ideas hit the policy agenda because people actually start to think of them, that people start to argue for them. This, of course, makes us, like academics, uh, uh, consider ourselves to be more important because we're kind of arguing uh, for ideas. And right around the higher education sector, uh, there's people who are arguing for certain kind of policies, like transport uh, policies or, or energy policies. And the question is, when, when is it that those kind of ideas suddenly kind of hit the agenda? When does something become fashionable, which wasn't kind of fashionable? And there's a lot of argument in the policy literature that sometimes issues of chance play a role, that suddenly some, a certain combination of events come together, that an idea that wasn't fashionable before then actually suddenly hits the agenda. Um, I think it kind of catches on. Uh, and there's an argument that, that these kind of agenda shifts can be quite, quite rapid. So uh, that's all of interest. I mean, and, and also the idea that, I think the, the big example of ideas of public policy is, is what I call is US policy, in the, uh, public poverty policy in the 1960s, where the US government paid huge attention to anti-poverty kind of policies in the 60s. But actually, in fact, in terms of the conditions of kind of poor people, in terms of the permanent crisis, those didn't really change between the 1950s and the 1960s. What had happened is that people started to argue about poverty. They started to consider it to be important. And then policymakers... Um, uh, paid, paid attention. Uh, so how does this relate to, to British politics? Now, I think one argument is, is to what extent is British politics kind of slow-moving slow or is it kind of fast-moving within this kind of, perspe- this kind of perspective? And <laughs> this relates to a kind of... I'm not, this is not really a political science talk, so I'll kind of uh, sort of skip over this uh, uh, a little bit. Basically, there's a lot of, there's a lot of arguments to say that British politics has all these kind of pressures for things to kind of run quite slowly. Convergence of parties, consensus politics in the past, long-running programs that are inherited. The political scientist Richard Rose has written, written a lot about this. That it's actually very hard to abolish a program uh, once it has been kind of established. 
at the power of kind of interest groups to, to basically ensure that their issues come on the agenda at a point in time, and the role of the kind of civil service in terms of expectations of, of what is actually prioritised. Another sort of argument suggests that actually British, British politics is actually potentially unstable. You have kind of party alternation, the tendency of parties to reverse each other's policies. Uh, you have the argument that, that Britain kind of lacks kind of veto players, people to actually stop things happening. So you tend to get rapid change. Policies adopted like the kind of poll tax, the single person uh, local tax, adopted very, very quickly. That ministers tend to be entrepreneurial. When a minister gets into office, they've got a relatively short time there, and they really want to actually get something on, on removing the civil servants and effectively conspire with that kind of ambition. And the idea that the media is always, always looking, for, looking for change and expecting things to happen. So these are kind of a bit like our kind of research questions. Kind of what, what do we expect about the policy agenda? Um, what do we expect to see over time? Hence the, the need for, the, for, the, for, the, um, for, for a long time range. Who are these characters? Frank Gardner and Brian Jones, Americans, have written a book called Agendas and Instability in British and American Politics. And basically they've charted the US uh, agenda, creating this kind of enormous coding system of 222, 25 categories, uh, and basically trying to sort of look at kind of shifts um, uh, over time. Why this gets important uh, is that they created this thing called the Policy Agendas Coding System, which I realise sounds a bit, a bit of a mouthful, uh, but basically it is a way to categorise government policies according to, a, according to a system. And this is what they come up with, these 21 major topic codes, they're called, um, and underneath these are what are called subcodes, and these have 225 subcodes, which are all the kind of different categories. But you can see the kind of basic categories are some of which I've already referred to already in terms of macroeconomics, health, education, environment, energy, all these kind of topics. So the claim here is that it's possible to work out by using these kind of definitions and topics what, what government is concentrating on at any one point uh, uh, in time. And in particular, and this is where I think in the end, give me a talk at the National Archives is, is appropriate, is that uh, it's possible to use government documents and, and kind of code them according to this, this, this category scheme. And, um, and the argument is this coding is kind of reliable, it's actually possible to work out when something's about health, when something's about the economy, uh, and to resolve that and you can see where I'm going with this, that it's possible to quantify the amount of attention which government is paying to any one topic uh, at a time. Uh, so this is the topic system. We might return to that, that in a minute. Now, I'm part of uh, what's called a, a research project called Comparative Policy Agendas. And it's actually quite common in my field, um, is that things start in North America... Uh, various kind of ideas, and then they start to kind of diffuse uh, across 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 the world. Uh, and we can perhaps talk about that, perhaps in Q and A, uh, why 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 that is. Um, but um, basically, the uh, major topic coding system which um, Baumgartner and Jones used has now been applied to a whole range of countries, uh, such as Belgium, Canada, Denmark, and then the, and this list. Of course, state, state of Pennsylvania is not, not a country, or maybe it maybe thinks it's a country, um, and obviously to, to, to uh, ourselves. And the uh, UK project was led by myself, and uh, we, we had funding from Economic and Social Research Council, for which we're very, very grateful. Uh, and we're actually, of course, part of a European Science Foundation 
uh, kind of cooperative project which kind of brought the teams together and allowed us to uh, exchange uh, information. So what did we what did we collect? We basically what we did is we took kind of core kind of documents, core policy documents. Now this is not the only, we can have a debate about what actually is the policy agenda of government. Um, and obviously the policy agenda of government covers a whole range of sets of activities. It might include delegated legislation, for example. It might include um, uh, cabinet minute uh, discussions. Um, but I think in any project you are always forced to make, a bit like the agenda setters themselves, you have to make priorities. Um, so we chose um, particular, particular things we thought were important representations uh, of the agenda. And the most, most important of these, for us, was the speech uh, from the throne. And I'll just um, talk a bit about this. Uh, this is a, um, um, a speech from the Sovereign, which is read out at the state opening uh, of Parliament. It's often called the Queen's Speech, but obviously doesn't have to be, because uh, if we get a king on the throne, then it will become the king's uh, speech. But I think because the monarch's been on the throne so, so long... We just got used to calling it uh, the Queen's uh, speech. This dates to this sense it's a kind of customary uh, sort of activity uh, to, to open Parliament and to make some kind of policy statement in the past. But since uh, 1852, after the fire at the Palace of Westminster, and since the ceremony was kind, of, was, kind of, was kind of refined, and it basically became more of a statement about what the government was going to be doing over, the, over that session. And uh, it contains usually two elements. One is what we call the executive gender, about kind of executive matters. Um, foreign policy may include kind of foreign policy matters. And then there's an element of the speech which is about effectively legislative promises. Uh, and I've just got here a, this is the most recent, oops, is, is, well here's the, um, I mean you, you kind of know, I'm assuming, I assume you kind of know in a sense this is something which appears on a television sets that um, uh, the monarch will read out uh, the uh, uh, Queen's speech um, uh, and effectively what happens is all the, you know, the, the, the lords are in, in attendance, the commons are at the back and this is kind of read out as part of, a, you know, this is part of the kind of pomp of, of, of British politics, what's kind of, uh, we're kind of you know, famous for it in, 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 in certain ways. But what's also interesting is that this is quite often the case in British politics, that behind the pomp there's actually some serious stuff going on uh, underneath. And the serious stuff is in that speech, although the monarch has not written that speech. What happens is the speech, there is a unit in the Cabinet Office uh, which deals with all legislation. And they, actually, they, and and they basically they work on this all year and they gather together proposals for the Queen's speech. And then when it gets close to the Queen's speech, then the, um, uh, effectively the, the Prime Minister gets involved with selecting what actually the final content actually is. Currently, of course, we now have a coalition government, so the Deputy Prime Minister is also involved with those discussions. But normally, well, in a single-party government, you have the Prime Minister. The speech gets put to the Cabinet for approval, it's also it is actually sent to the monarch, and it, need, there is, it needs to be kind of signed. In a sense, a draft is sent, but the comments that come back from the monarch are really to do with uh, wording, are really to do with the way in which the, in a sense, because the monarch is reading the speech out, the the the, the, the monarch's advisers are quite concerned that it should read clearly and be be manageable. So those kind of comments are really about drafting comments, or if there are specific. 
aspects of that speech which are to do with the, the, the Queen's engagements. Um, and obviously, these will be right, but obviously, they're kind of checked by that office. So, and this is kind of massive convention in British politics, which is that the monarch doesn't intervene in, in day to day politics and it's respected in the procedures for the speech. So, you have a speech which is read out, but in a sense, it's written by the Prime Minister of the day and state and contains all, the, all, all, these, all these policies. Um, it's, it's produced on vellum. And um, which is a kind of medieval, um, made of animal hide. I don't quite know the technical exactly how it's actually made. But it's actually apparently, vellum is not made by many, I think there's only one company which makes, which actually is able to actually produce the speech as a location in Essex. I think there was some quite some concern actually that the company was going out of business. Um, so uh, a problem how do you uh, create the, the speech of this company but apparently the company is still, is still in, in business the other interesting thing about the speech is that it takes some time for the vellum to dry it takes about a week which seems quite a long time but apparently that's the way it is you, you, can't, you know, can't read the speech if the ink is not dry now this also and this is I think for me quite comic is not quite the right word but I have this um, I have this imaginary scene where you know, they're, in, they're in, we're in number 10 and uh, David Cameron and Nick are having an argument and about what's in the Queen's speech and there's some sort of servant in the background comes up and says well Nick Demi, you've got to, you're agreed pretty soon because we've got to send the thing off or else it won't dry in time for being read out so, uh, so this is where some of the, kind of the odd features of British politics uh, you know things which are kind of quite ancient uh, impinge on our on our day-to-day life and effectively a kind of modern, effectively a modern state. But this kind of medieval stuff carries on. So this is the one. This is the, the Queen's speech in May uh, 2012. So this is the latest one. And um, basically, there is a statement of all the kind of legislative programmes which can be introduced. These speeches actually were different before 1997. The Labour government changed changed them. So effectively, there are. This is not the whole speech. Huh? wasn't able to do a screenshot of the whole thing of you. It's probably quite small to read in any case and see one of you squinting uh, your eyes. Um, so, I mean, it's really just for examples that basically they are really affect most of them are these the legislative programmes uh, which, which are in the speech. At the bottom, you get more of the executive stuff and some of the Queen's engagements. Now, what's of interest to us is that it's actually possible to code all of these sentences according to the policy agenda scheme. Well, we've done that. We've actually gone back to 1911 and done that. Um, and um, uh, So here's the screen. So what else have we got? So, yes, yeah, so... The other interesting thing about speech, actually, while I'm on this, is... And I haven't quite got to the... This is actually where... Uh, since I've, I've not used a vast amount of the, of the National Archives for this project. In fact, we were able to get most of the Queen's speeches anyway. Most of them in Manchester University Library. Uh, had a, a very industrious Chinese student who kind of found them all in little corners of the uh, library. Um, but actually, fact, I have been using the uh, incredibly accessible um, uh, sort of government uh, information in the archives for actually read, you know, actually looking at some of the cabinet discussions around the Queen's speech. And um, I interviewed uh, a civil servant, this current civil servant who. Um, is, is responsible for um, compiling the Queen's speeches, and um, he told me that the cabinet 
doesn't discuss the current cabinet, doesn't discuss the contents of the Queen's speech. That in fact, it goes with cabinet without very much discussion at all. Maybe no discussion. Um, he says that a lot of things are discussed beforehand in the sense that people are squared off. I think that was his phrase. And um, but natural fact, the, the actual cabinet itself doesn't interfere. So I was very surprised when I was looking at the Queen's speech for 1973 to find that the actual cabinet itself had modified the speech. The actual cabinet minutes showed that the speech was actually modified. So I don't know what the story is here, whether in older days we had a more collegiate cabinet and uh, the government was more uh, informal, uh, the cabinet meetings were perhaps more genuine in terms of discussion debate, but now the cabinet is larger, perhaps it plays less of a role. So I'm not quite, quite got to the bottom of that. But there we are. But for our purposes, we're in a sense, we're really interested in the kind of quantitative uh, side of the Queen's speech. And um, so we've coded all this stuff. And um, part of the um, reason for the book is really to make the data widely available. We've used the data. I've got a whole range of projects and papers based on, uh, I've got another whole other book actually on, on, on using this data. But I think part of the idea is, is to make that data available. Uh, in the same way that, that, that people, in the sense that yourselves at National Archives are making data more easily available. That's the age we live in. And actually, also as a scholar, one of the things that actually is quite attractive is you spend all the... I mean, to, to code this data, has t- it took years and years and years. Um, it's quite hard to electronically code it. it. It's maybe possible now, but at the time we had the, the money, it's actually quite hard to use software to actually ascribe the codes uh, accurately. So we've actually coded it all manually. So a large number of students at the University of Manchester have been gainfully uh, employed uh, in reading these speeches and coding them. Uh, they're coded by two coders uh, independently. They will reconcile and deal with the... Uh, there's obviously some areas where sometimes these codes don't quite... In that sense, people can't quite agree and have to resolve that. Um, so, um, in fact, I think a lot of students actually... They said they quite enjoyed it, actually, the process of reading these speeches and laws and things. Uh, they actually learn quite a lot about British politics uh, as a result. So we have all that data, uh, and it's readily available. Uh, and we have our own website, UK Policy Agendas Project. Uh, and so we put some various sort of pieces and books. We'll put, and we all, we all, in particular, we have the kind of data, this whole data set. Uh, so here's the Queen's speeches going right back to 1911. So you can actually read the actual the actual line in the Queen's speech, we've actually pasted it in so you can actually check to see if you agree with our coding. Uh, and basically you can use it. And it's just been used quite extensively. Um, and um, you know, I think the, you know, part of the art is to always write the first paper from a project. So there's John et al. or, or, or Patelli et al. or Jen- Jennings et al. And then hopefully forevermore we'll be cited and quoted uh, by our successors. This is just the number of sentences in the Queen's speech, um, basically showing that obviously you have variations, um, but actual fact, over time, it's broadly the same kind of space. Maybe it's got kind of lumps and lumps here. And the kind of bottom line in the Queen's speech is, um, and this is, we've coded not speeches but also laws, so you've actually coded the kind of title and content of each law. Which is going through Parliament. And fairly, and in any of these kind of data projects, if there was no correlation between the content of the Queen's speech 
and the, and, the, and the law, we'd be in trouble because we know, one of the things we know, the first thing you know as a student of British politics is that the government of the day can get most of its measures through Parliament. So if government's promising something in the Queen's speech, we'd expect to see it, other things being equal, as a law. This is true even with the current coalition. Effectively, what the coalition's happened, what, what the coalition, current coalition government has achieved is basically to pull the manifesto promises from those parties into, into a document called the Coalition Agreement, and that is being implemented. Um, I was part of an advisory group in the Cabinet Office. Uh, we had a meeting with um, Oliver Letwin. Um, my other interest is behaviour change and, and those, those sorts of things. And we were kind of in the... Um, there's, one, there's a very nice office in, in the Cabinet with sort of nice big armchairs, big room, and you look, overlook the kind of horse guards, sort of the parade at the, uh, the square uh, there. And um, there's all that moment in the meeting when you're kind of settling in. The tea, the tea's been sort of produced. Um, and Oliver Letwin sort of came in and was sort of chatting away to us. Uh, it's, sort of, you know, it's this kind of style... Um, and but our eyes looked up, and there's a kind of huge kind of whiteboard uh, in in the corner of the corner of the room. This was in February 2001, so not that long after the coalition government was was elected. And it was just, it was like an enormous. I don't know about you. I don't, do, you do you do lots of to do lists? I have millions of to do lists. Uh, not all of them actually achieve. Um, uh, but it looked like an enormous to do list, just a list of of of, of various kind of. Uh, items and uh, uh, it was perhaps a little bit sort of hard for us to read right across across the room. So we we asked Oliver, what, 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 "What's that?" And Oliver Letwood said, oh, well, "That's my Oliver Letwood impression, by the way." Uh, <laughs> said, um, um, "That's the coalition agreement." Um, so we kind of looked up there, um, and it, actually our eyes were able to focus on the fact that only five of the items had ticks next to it. So we looked up and said, you know, that's not many, uh, Oliver. I wouldn't quite say that, but in, the, in, the, in those words. He said, well, of course, we're going to open the whole lot. Um, and, um, I mean, one is, it's quite nice for somebody like myself, as a political scientist, to actually see the inside of government and decisions being made. It feels very much closer than kind of reading the textbooks uh, or even the Queen's speeches. Um, but I think what, what I really got across was the real commitment of the British government to actually implementing a programme. I've got the impression that this, this, is, this, is, this board was really serious and they're determined to implement. Now obviously things go wrong. House of Lords goes wrong. So there should be a correlation between these, these two things and, and, and for most, most of them they are the same. I think. So basically so these are the kind of speeches. So this is the this, is a, this, is the, this should be 20. So this, this, is, this, is really, this, is, this would be like 20% of the speeches devoted to the economy in 19... 47. Um, and basically, you can see that basically it's quite, it's relatively static over time. And there's a kind of slight increase, it goes up uh, during the 1970s, 80s, and then goes down. The interesting thing to note is how, in the Queen's speech, attention to the economy went down in this kind of period. And we know about these, like, these kind of secular changes to the policy agenda. Uh, and I mean, the story is quite simple, but effectively, Britain was increasingly feeling sensitive to economic problems and then felt a need to, to pass legislation and to mention the Queen's speech about economic matters. But around this period, the economy, the economy turned around. 
And the interesting thing for us, and there's some other series, the International Relations series has this quality too. So these, these kind of real big policy topics which government wants to concentrate on, if for a variety of reasons um, government gets less attentive to them, there's less need to attend to them, they kind, of get, they kind of decline. And of course, there may be objective reasons for doing that, but at the same time as decline, it means also there's actually space for other things to get in on the agenda. Now, another one is international affairs. Now, there's not actually a map much legislation on international affairs. It's mainly done in the Queen's Speech. And it's, for reasons I've suggested, quite an important feature of the Queen's Speech because the Queen's Speech is often a lot of international problems and challenges are highlighted in the Queen's Speech. Um, but again, it's not something which is constant. You get quite significant, significant variation over time, which kind of reflect the so intensity of international affairs or various things which, which are happening in the international arena, series of international kind of agreements in this, in this period in particular. The period which, again, interests me is the more modern period when we have, by about sort of, mid, about sort of late 1980s, this kind of decline in interest in international affairs. Why this happening? Possibly the case that end of the Cold War, whole series of kind of problems kind of sorted out, not yet new problems to be kind of discovered. So you have to get this quite acute fall in the policy agenda in that period. Coincidentally, at the same time, the economy is also falling in that, that period. So, defence is another interesting, uh, interesting one. And again, there aren't that many much legislation on, on defence, so many it's items in the Queen's speech. Again, you know, in a sense, I always think with data, um, I think if your data tells you something obvious, there's always a fear with data analysis. Are you measuring... What, you, you know, what, what, what the real world is, or is it some artefact of the coding system? So the fact you have this kind of vast attention just after the Second World War, which goes, goes down, is, is reassuring. And it, and it seems to go up at, at kind of expected uh, points in time. Again, look at this interesting figure here, where um, it kind of drops at this kind of same period, this period of attention. Now, the other thing we can do with these agendas also is also, is also to transpose them with, with other agendas, it's the same graph, um, but we've actually superimposed a kind of budget line. Uh, but also, uh, this one is our media measure. One of the things I forgot to do was talk about our other measures, actually. So, uh, um, but, so we also have measured the media, which is, um, again, I'm, I'm open for you to be, to be critical. But again, we have resources. So we, have, we wanted to choose one measure of the media. So basically, we've measured front pages of the Times, back to 1960. Um, and um, there's, I could give a whole talk about how complicated that was, um, which included the fact that it wasn't the front page of the Times mm. in much of the 60s. Um, there's a problem at the time that actually went on strike for over a year. Um, yeah. But let's leave all that uh, aside or for, or for Q&A. And what's interesting is, 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 is that, and again, these are kind of questions as political scientists are interested, you know, if something gets more important in the media, does that mean the government's going to attend, attend to it? Um, and there's huge debates about these sorts of things. But the interesting thing is, is that essentially you've got this kind of declining proportion of budget. This is the budget proportion, massively declining over time, still going down. Um, but actually, in fact, in terms of the media attention, still kind of very high, high levels of attention to the media, obviously associated with 
uh, international conflict. So it's quite interesting that if you think about in terms of the core policymakers of government, and this is irrespective of political party, are made a series of decisions over the long term to reduce the proportion of spending on defence. At the same time, as, as in terms of the, the media, still very much uh, uh, interested in it. So now to the next one. Those, I think, are some of the kind of classic topics of government. And in some ways, I think for a, a previous sort of generation of scholars, we kind of think these as kind of, this is the kind of thing we think the government really is all about. Well, this is, I suppose, is, is, is another one. We always expect governments to um, pay attention to law and order. But it's one which in the past hasn't kind of had that kind of core status. Um, so these are mentions of law and order, uh, law and crime are the, in the speech. Uh, these are acts, obviously you do get quite a lot of acts going through uh, on crime, so your, your crime acts are bigger than, 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 than your speech mentions. And again, it seems kind of a sort of ratchety sort of pattern, which you can't really set any change. But look at this change here. Suddenly, around about 1993, we have this kind of mass, massive increase in the number, in number of acts, and similar kind of less, less pronounced increase in speech mentions. I'm not sure we're going to ascribe this single-handedly to the uh, to, 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 to the acts of, of, of Michael Howard. I think Michael Howard obviously pushed it probably further. Um, but you know, it says all politicians always need to write events. They, they have to sense the times and work with them. Uh, and I think perhaps Michael Howard sensed that. Um, but um, we also know it's a period when the Labour Party itself started to stress issues of crime and. Back to Tony Blair. Tony Blair uh, was the opposition spokesman, or, 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 or opposition Home Secretary, um, and, and coined some well-known phrases: uh, "Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime." I think was his other soundbite, which we know him uh, for. Uh, so, in a sense, Labour too was sensing this change, change in times. Now, uh, the other interesting thing about this is also the role of the kind of media. So we have kind of kind of break, 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 kind of rise. And so the media doesn't quite rise quite as fast actually as legislation, but there is this kind of upswing upswing in the media change. So it's slightly more confusing this one. So you've got budgets, speeches, acts, and media. Um, budget actually, interestingly, quite 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 flat. Um, so in a sense, the real action in terms of government policy making is actually the legislative agenda. And it's no surprise to know that governments of all of all hues have pushed through. Series of law and order legislation, which are designed for popular attention, and designed to make them look effective and strong in this in the, in the, in, the, in this area. Um, and I think it's quite a complicated story about why that actually happened. Uh, why was it law and order that actually got on on the agenda? Um, as you see, the media doesn't this, in this measure of the media doesn't appear to be leading it. So it's perhaps something that politicians, the parties, have perhaps discovered discovered themselves. And maybe they were taking part, taking an opportunity that this is the same period when um, attention to the economy need, need not be so strong. So in a sense, the, the policy agenda had kind of started to, to, to open up and actually gave an opportunity to stress, to stress, to, to stress new issues. But quite, quite quickly, the parties got into competition over this issue. And in terms of what we call issue ownership, Labour parties of the left always feel... They don't own the issue of the economy. It's not an, not an issue which they feel comfortable with. So what Tony Blair did was to actually try and confront that and to make Labour actually own law and order issues. So when 
uh, Labour got into power in 1997. Um, Cliff Blunkett was Home Secretary. Was had a kind of a go. David Glover is, is a liberal on, 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 on many issues. He was also able to to promote a, a, a law and order uh, agenda, partly for consumption of the popular press, uh, and partly to, to give a particular stamp to the uh, Labour government. And I think part of the argument of the book is that uh, New Labour is one of the most distinctive in terms of the agenda governments across our series in terms of emphasising these sorts of issues. Now, some things like uh, dif- like, home- like crime, you can see these things taking a rather long time scale, whereby when New Labour got into power in 1997, you can see they're kind of building on what, as you say, Michael Howard was, was doing in the previous thing. For other issues, New Labour has started these. Now, health is another really interesting issue. Uh, again, um, you have uh, speeches uh, and acts on, on health. Again, if you look at the post-war period, you get these kind of ratcheting going on of various kind of legal, legal reforms. By natural fact, relatively low levels. And what's again interesting is, I think this period from the 1980s, you see this gradual rise in attention to health uh, issues. Not quite such a, a strong rise in this period, um, but we've looked at the, the data, and actually this is kind of quite a strong international trend um, whereby um, health seems to become more important for governments to attend to. Now, the reason this perhaps have to do with kind of rising costs of health care, to do with demands for health care for elderly populations and the like. But they've seemed to have felt a need to say more about health. And also health has got more important politically. We know that voters value competence in the kind of health policy domain. So I think it's what's happened is that governments have rather slowly moved towards health uh, as an important uh, kind of issue. It's an expended, as you see, these kind of massive kind of growths. There's an adjustment in 1990, but gradual growth in expenditure, proportion of expenditure uh, on, on health. And also the media, you can see the media actually getting more interested in kind of health issues in this kind of crucial, crucial period at the end of our data set. So you can see, and it's quite often these agendas, they, they, they correlate together. They often kind of move, move together, but not necessarily, necessarily so. Um, this, is, this is back to Teddy Blair again. Um, and again, with education, again, it's not, not the most, obviously you, have, you do have mentions of uh, education reforms, education changes in the speech, in the laws. But in fact, you don't seem to see this kind of shift at the end of, end of the end, end of the data series. So it seems interesting that Tony Blair has started saying education, education, education. But actually, fact, there isn't that kind of massive shift in the series. In fact, you probably should have said, you know, crime, crime, crime. Uh, <laughs> or, <laughs> anyway, um, social welfare is another interesting. Uh, interesting area where you, you tend to have quite low attention to social welfare issues and a kind of slight expansion at the end uh, of the series. What's interesting about social welfare, and again, this is another of these interesting things that are in our data, is you can see the vast amount of public expenditure rising over time on, on kind of social welfare. It's not surprising that the current coalition government is focused on the social welfare budget because it's one of your biggest and also where you have least control of it because it's largely demand-given. But in fact, in terms of public attention, not much going on. So there's sometimes a difference between 
what policymakers are deciding behind the scenes and the kind of level of tension which actually happens in these public consumptions. I'm going to speed up a little bit because it would be nice to have some time for um, Q&A. So housing decline, massive decline in tension of housing. I always think the agriculture one is quite interesting. The agriculture used to be quite, quite an important um, item in the laws and free speeches. It's gone down over time. So, as you, and then these are other, other, these new topics, civil rights, which have, which have increased. Uh, environment seems to have this kind of secular point. You have this kind of secular um, sort of attention to the environment. Obviously, got the 1990s. It was a really important time. Uh, that's when the Green Party got 15% in the uh, uh, European elections in 1990. So, there's that attention. There was a huge of European Union legislation coming through at the same time. Government operation is another interesting one. Another interesting new label. This is actually really is a new label one. And the government operation is a whole series of kind of just the government organisation contain things like kind of devolution, management of foreign territories, and those sorts of things. And again, you can see that the major government is paying actually no attention to this at all. And suddenly, bang, new Labour comes in, uh, and you have all these reforms: the um, uh, setting up the, the Greater London Assembly, the Scotland Act, the Wales Act. All these acts suddenly coming in, coming in. So in actual fact, I think probably New Labour really is crime, crime, crime. But in actual fact, it's government operations, government operations, government operations. Um, I really am going to speed up here. So, but obviously, there is this relationship between public opinion. And we can measure public opinion through various surveys over time. Not quite back to 1945, but actually back to, back to 1960 we can. And then this is quite interesting relationship between public opinion and all these kind of policy series. Um, and... Um, and actually, fact, when I did in my interview with the civil service, it was quite interesting in, in that, that the items in the Queen's speech were, cor- were correlated. Again, you can see, again, this is, this, is, this is public opinion on crime. Again, you can see how all these things are kind of public opinion and Queen's speech mentions are actually quite, quite closely correlated. And the question, of course, is what is causing what? Is it public opinion that's causing what's in the Queen's speech? Or is it what's, in the, what's the government doing causing people to, 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 to get worried? This is what we've done. We've established the topics of public policy that cause it of constant scientific focus. That's our big claim. So shoot us down if you, if you, if you want to. Um, and I think our key finding is that the kind of topics which, you know, a kind of previous generation of you know, myself, you know, t- 25 years ago, um, would have considered important, now no longer seem to be so important. But the issues like defence and culture, which previous policymakers would have thought were important, and these have been replaced by a whole series of new agendas, civil rights, health, crime and these other issues. So that, in a sense, what government has been, been preoccupied with what is, has actually changed quite substantially uh, in, in, that, in, in, in that period. And that was, has, has been implications for uh, lawmaking and, and obviously the budgets which those ministries receive. So basically, going back to stability, we think that British politics doesn't have this kind of quality of stability. It actually has this ability to respond to new issues and dimensions. And then you have all these long periods of kind of, of, kind of equilibrium. Ironically, in this day, the, the partisan shifts are not the most important thing that's going on. There are some partisan things going on. Um, but it seems to be that, it's that a particular government, sometimes, like New Labour, decide that it makes sense to kind of focus on these particular uh, uh, issues. And of course, the tendency, obviously, to what extent has the fact that the economy has now become more important meant that we've actually gone back to uh, a kind of prior, a prior, prior system. So I think my claim is what we've done is try to answer some questions about decision-making and public policy over a long period of time with this data set. Um, a lot of our conclusions are going to be uh, in the book, but as you probably gather, there's a lot of stuff 
in the data which could still be explored. And I think my hope is that other scholars will use our data to, to answer these questions. So, thank you. This talk was recorded on the 21st of February 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.